Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a fun one. We are hearing from esteemed British rock writer, journalist, talking head, you name it, Mick Wall. Now, if you don't know who Mick Wall is, you've probably seen him before. If you've ever watched any rock talk, basically, or classic album dissection, or something put out by the BBC on the history of rock or whatever... You've probably seen Mick's face on there. He is always reliably interesting and fascinating and thoughtful whenever he's on these shows. Well, his career goes way back to the 70s. It starts out in like PR and promotion, largely with a lot of new wave bands. I wanted to ask him so much about that, and we we kind of ran out of time. Anyway, he quickly realizes the real story and the characters are all in hard rock and heavy metal. And that's where he spends the majority of his career. He writes for magazines like Kerrang! and Classic Rock and a bunch of others that are long gone. He's written books about... I made a list. This is just a handful of the books he's written. Led Zeppelin, Guns N' Roses, Ozzy, Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, Lemmy, Meatloaf. There's tons of them out there. And so he's been a mover, mover and a shaker. He knows all of these people. And his stories are fantastic. Especially, we talk a lot about Led Zeppelin in here. I could have done this for hours and hours. In fact, I tried to squeeze in a part two for later this week. But he's working on another book right now with Stephen Wilson. And was too busy. Didn't have time. Hopefully we can do that down the line. I just want to keep going. Throw topics at him and see what he says. We talk about Bowie in here. Iggy Pop. Uh, Lou Reed, Queen, Rush, you name it. And um, he also has a brand new podcast, of course, who doesn't, called the McWall Podcast. It's funny, though, because it's really DIY, bare bones. Uh, there's hardly any editing or production involved. In fact, when you listen, he's in one ear and the guy he does the podcast with is in the other. They don't even bother to fix that. So... Uh, and he's been banned from Twitter, which I wanted to ask him about, but I didn't get a chance to. So anyway, he's a character. He's seen it all. He's got stories about everybody. And we get into a few of them in here. Hopefully we can do a part two someday and get into a bunch more. I don't remember where he lives in England. Probably somewhere around London, but I don't know. That's where he called in from. Oh, I like your shirt. Oh, I like your good, shirt. Thank you. Yes, it was That's a Christmas gift. I just got it recently. One of my all-time favorite albums. Same here. 
same here. It's a shame they could never do it again. It's just that one. I uh, to- totally G. agree. Yeah. Back in like the early, early 90s, a friend of mine, you won't have heard of him. He wasn't a famous musician, <laughs> but he was an excellent musician called Tim Mortimer. And he toured with Tom Verlaine in Tom Verlaine's solo band mm-hmm. in like 93 or whenever it was. Mm-hmm. And he was saying to me, I couldn't believe it, man. He said, we're, we're at rehearsals for the tour. He goes, and Tom's trying to figure out how to play Marquee Moon. Uh, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> He's trying to figure like it this, out. Tom, da-da, da-da, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I said, was, was, he, was he wasted? What's, what happened? You know, he goes, I don't know, man. He, he, maybe he just played it too many times. I don't know. But, no um, way. Um, interesting. So I've been doing this podcast for coming up on seven years and um, put out a weekly episode, interview all my favorite people. And um, a couple years ago, I interviewed Richard. And uh, oh, wow. about 20 minutes in, he decided he didn't like me. And he said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like your questions. I don't like where you're coming from. I'd rather just get off. And uh, that's oh, the one and only time wow. that's ever happened. And unfortunately, it happened with Richard Lloyd, who I was pretty jazzed to talk <laughs> hey, maybe maybe that's what happened with Tom. You know, Richard's like Tom. You know what? Fuck this. I, I don't. I don't like songs anymore. You can't remember Marky Moon. Right. I'm really pissed off. You know. That's right. I know. Okay. Well, usually, when we bring on yeah. writers like yourself, I like to sprinkle in some of their favorite songs or songs that they yeah. want to talk about or whatever. And. Tell us what number one, what your first pick is going to be. The first one, then, I would love it uh, if it was David Bowie, Moon Age, Daydream from the Ziggy Stardust album. Of course. Now, why <laughs> that one in particular? I'm a gigantic David Bowie fan. Why He's my number one of all time. He is, to me, what heavy metal and hard rock is to you. Why that song? Oh, well, no, no. No, back up, John. Back up, John. Okay, okay. Bowie is to me, Bowie is to me what he is to you. Okay. Rock, rock and metal is uh, music that uh, I think some of it is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think some of it stinks. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into specializing in writing about rock and metal because I was a fan of the music. Mm-hmm. I got into writing about it because I was a fan of the story. Yeah, you know, I could see these that. guys. These guys. I, I've worked with uh, lots of pop groups. I've worked with Adam Ant, Human League. I'm going to ask you about those rock. too. Yes, because uh, that's more my. I'm. I like hard rock and heavy metal, but I'm. I've warmed to it in the last 15 years or so. I grew up on the new wave stuff, and so right, right. Um, well, yeah. Me too. I I, okay. um, I was 19 when I first became a published reviewer and that was in october 77 a height of punk and that's all i wrote about but i had always liked before that i mean bowie was always number one i, I grew up in that uh, i didn't, started buying albums in the early 70s so bowie uh rod stewart early 70s rod stewart elton john pink floyd uh roxy music and then, of course, you discover Dylan and Hendrix and the Beatles, and you go back. So by the time I'm writing about punk, 
the trouble is i didn't i didn't you know they don't give you the great stuff when you start out you get all the shit that no one wants to do <laughs> so it wasn't like go and interview the sex pistols it was my first ever review was a group called the lurkers at a pub an empty little pub in hammersmith which was a dingy part of west london and uh, I wrote it was like the fifth, my fifth attempt. I was going to quit after this if I didn't get anywhere. And they published it. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I'm the guy that writes about shit bands no one's ever heard of in shit places no one wants to go. And this, this is this is the start of my glittering career. Right. <laughs> and then about a year in, because uh, the resident kind of rock and metal guy, he, he, he'd gone off to Thailand for three months to take drugs, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so uh, they need someone to review UFO. And um, I went, oh, and uh, off I went. And they were really, really good. I'd always like, I'd like Thin Lizzy. I'd like Zeppelin. I'd like the Stones. I had no problem with rock music. And UFO were a steaming great band in the late 70s. But here's the deal. After the show, they had a party. <laughs> and suddenly, being in these shitholes, talking to punk bands with no talent, uh-huh. that just wish they could be Johnny Rotten. So you, you meet this guy. He might be some middle-class kid from a really good background. And let's say his name is Jim. You know, you go, oh, hi, Jim. Yeah, man, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, you know, okay. So uh, what's happening? Nothing. I hate parties. They're boring. <laughs> now I'm with UFO, chicks, coke. Yeah, loads yeah. of guys with money. Yeah. We went to the party in the back of a limo, and of course I laughed my ass off. They just had, they just were funny, funny people yeah. who didn't give a fuck. And that appealed to me. That has always appealed to me. My father uh, was a musician, Irish, Scottish blood. And uh, in the 50s and early 60s, he played that kind of rebel music, you know, that that kind of uh, like country music in America, um, but the wild stuff, you know. And uh, as a child, like when I was five or six years old, he would come back to the house at like 2 a.m. from some little gig in some Irish club or something and he'd have his band with him and uh they'd hit the house and start playing and drinking and and he used to get my mum to get me out of bed like uh he was Irish get the boy get the boy get the boy down now you know I'd be woken up taken downstairs with these lunatic Irish and Scottish guys playing their tin whistles and their accordions and God knows what else, singing songs about killing the English, you know. Mm -hmm. And I would just kind of, you know, yeah, okay, it's fun. But then after about an hour or so, the music would die and out would come the stories. Uh, And the stories, the stories musicians have lived their life on the road uh, will tell you. They're just fantastic. They're just, some of the funniest shit you've ever heard, but yeah. also crazy stuff, sad stuff, bizarre stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I ended up being a writer because, because, because like a lot, I mean, I, I thought, I, I thought maybe I'd be in a band or something like that. And then when I saw how these punk bands, how hard they had to work in these terrible empty venues, mm-hmm. I thought, fuck that. That's really hard work. You know, whereas I could yeah. be on my own and write and, 
And so I love stories. And so through UFO, I then worked with Tim Lizzie. And by the time I was 20, uh, I'd ended up working for a publicity company in London called Heavy Publicity. Mm-hmm. And they did Black Sabbath, Journey, Dire Straits, Ario Speedwagon. They did the Tubes and they did the Damned. But mainly it was like Hawkwind, Motorhead, you know, that end of things. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, it wasn't it wasn't about what music do I like. It was it was who do I want to hang out with, uh, travel, Makes sense. write about. Right. So, but Bowie, mm-hmm. Ziggy Stardust was like the second album I ever bought. I was fourteen when that came out. You know, I, I heard Moon Age Daydream. This is what made me think of it. I heard Moon Age Daydream the other day. Uh, it came up somewhere, and I just turned it up, and it just took me right back. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, wow, this this is this is actually where it began for me. Mm-hmm. Not just loving stories, but getting completely turned on and blown apart by the music. Yeah. Because the music is important. Yeah. And I've been lucky as the years have gone by, I have written a lot about people that whose music I do genuinely <laughs> admire and get turned on by. Yeah. And mostly I've written about people whose records I'm not that interested in, you know, it's the story. Yeah. But Bo, exactly. yeah, he, he, he ticked every box. And with Ziggy, he really was still rock and roll, you know, yeah. he went into all kinds of areas. Mm-hmm. But Moon Age Daydream is such a kick-ass it rock is. and roll song. Yeah. And, and Mick Ronson, just beautiful guitar playing. And, He's the man. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I recently, I, I've been going, I've been, ranking my my favorite albums from you know best to worst from a lot of my favorite artists and i recently redid my bowie ranking and i had scary i have scary monsters is my favorite bowie album um yeah. i'm curious and then i station to station would be second and hunky dory is third what's your favorite bowie album ziggy even in the days of ziggy i was seriously fond of the man who sold the world mm. um but i loved all his records for different reasons. So it's very hard for me to, I think Scary Monsters was the last work of genius he ever okay. did. I agree. I, I I really didn't like Let's Dance. I totally hated Tonight. The Glass Spider or whatever that thing was. That Never was why I met him in interview. Really? Like, what a terrible, come on. Never, tonight, never let me down. Uh, I have to admit. I love those albums because that those were my formative Bowie years. That's when I ah, I became a fan okay. of Let's Dance. Tonight, I remember get the day my I got brought uh, tonight, and it was one of the happiest moments of my life. And uh, so, and never let me down. It gets better with age. I love those albums, even though I know they're garbage, because I was well, the right age at that time. You know? Oh, of course, of course. It's kind of like. Yeah. Um, like James Bond, you know, who, who's your favorite James Bond? It's, it's the guy that you first connected with that True. moment. Yeah. Well, for me, it would be that my connection was Ziggy. Okay. Uh, in particular, uh, a track not from Ziggy, uh, but was a huge hit over here, the Gene Genie. Yeah. Um, but that whole Ziggy period, for sure, for sure. But Station to Station, that's, that's serious stuff. Yeah. If I hadn't chosen, I was thinking, if I didn't choose Moon Age Daydream, I'd have chosen Stay. From station to station. That's uh yes, that's in my top five Bowie songs for sure. Stay oh, is sweet. up there. Uh, yeah. 
Earl Slick. Wow. Yeah. But also the track station to station and just a superb piece of work. But I also loved Young Americans. Mm. I still, to this day, get very uh, connected to something strange in my head with the Low album. Mm. Heroes, I really, really liked. Really, really liked. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it hasn't stayed with me in the same way as Low or Station to Station. I know. Uh, Scary, Scary Monsters was a, was a wow. You know, he's mm -hmm. still got it, kid. You know, wow. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, Let's Dance, yeah, I, I couldn't get with that whole blonde hair. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm now in the 80s. I've had my teeth fixed. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make really popular songs for boys and girls who have no idea who I am. Right. I get it. I get it. You know, yeah. too many musicians die broke, mm -hmm. uh, or they make some money and they piss it away. And in the seventies, when Bowie was making two albums a year at one point, you know for sure he wasn't the millionaire we all imagined he was. Well, that was but the. Let's dance, but Let's Dance did it for him. Let's Dance. That was the, the first album he made after he wasn't tethered to Tony DeFreeze anymore either. Yeah. Yeah, up to that point, yeah. I think he had to give like half his royalties still to Tony, even though they weren't even contractually bound. So, of course, when he's no longer tied to him, he says, I want to have hits because I'm going to be the guy who makes all the money off these finally, you know, not him. And also by then he's 35. He's divorced. He's got a kid who is in his teens. And for sure, I, I get it. I get it. You know, this is all great, but I need to get paid. Yeah. Uh, and and, that, and he and he really did kind of hit the zeitgeist. I mean, that was the eighties. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, which was weird because in in this country at the in the early eighties, you know, I, I worked with Ultravox. I worked with Human League. I worked with Japan. I worked with Simple Minds, uh, and all of them would not have existed without Bowie. No, it's true. And then a couple of years after that, Bowie kind of goes, oh, I get it. Duran, Duran, da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. Let's dance. Mm -hmm. You know, I just thought, yeah, I, I get yeah. it. I get it. But it's not, it's not, this is, I didn't need that. You know, he needed it. I didn't. Yeah, that's my take on the 80s too, is the 80s is him following the people who yeah. had been following him in the 70s yeah. he cre he does yeah. all this stuff in the 70s those people the human leagues the simple minds they take what he did and ran with it he sees what they're doing and then he starts following them yeah. versus the other yeah. way around let me tell you a couple of things number one you're one of my favorite talking heads whoever whenever you <laughs> pop up on some rock doc i know i'm in good hands and i always think there's you there's paul gambaccini if am i saying his name oh, right i love paul pops yeah. up on something i think I, I love what he has to say and the other one is malcolm dome who i've always yeah. thought i've always called the guy with the teeth until he <laughs> died recently and that's i never remembered his name but i thought oh the guy with the teeth died do we know how malcolm died you two were close i've by the way i've been listening to all of your podcasts lately and i love them so oh, okay. tell me okay. tell me what happened with malcolm do we know uh, i don't I don't know the specifics. You know, Malcolm was extremely private person and, and I worked with him for many years and knew him very well. So I got to see some of that, but 
I didn't spend a lot of time with Malcolm in recent years, although we would still email and, you know, my understanding what is, and I, I can't say this 100% true, but this is what I've been told and, mm. and what I picked up along the way. Uh, he'd been ill for a while. Uh, I don't know what with, but there was a, a time, uh, and I don't know if it's 10 years or five years, I'm going to say five or six years. There was a moment where he kind of vanished for a little while and it turned out he'd been in the hospital and he'd been very ill. I don't know what. And when he came out, he didn't drink anymore mm. and he'd lost a lot of weight. He was never a big guy anyway, but um, that's when he started to look quite skeletal. Mm. And then what I heard was uh, the last night anybody saw him, he was at a gig. He was always at a gig. And he was like, I'm not feeling so good. So I'm going to leave early whoa, Malcolm's leaving early, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, no one knew he had a home to go to. He never left early anything, you know. And, but he went home, and then nobody heard anything for a couple of days. And I gather that friends or family or someone got concerned and called the cops, and they broke the door down, and he was in there dead. Ugh. I first... I probably told it on the podcast how I met Malcolm. I was, I was uh, the PR of his first ever interview. Mm-hmm. I remember you um, saying he was like more of an Orthodox Jew with like a yarmulke back then. No drinking, yeah. no partying, oh, yeah. no nothing. No, no, no. This is like 19, I want to say 1979. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were called heavy publicity and we had every drug you can imagine, every kind of booze. You know, you got Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy coming in. You better be packing the goods. And but also it was the 70s. It wasn't, we didn't call it drugs. We didn't call it alcohol abuse. You know, cocaine was like champagne. It was like, oh, how lovely. And you'd go, oh, yeah, we, it's the Bolivian. You know, it's very good. You know, like from 1972. Oh, really? The, the, the flaky rock that was grown on the side of the hill. Oh, how lovely, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, right. magic mushrooms oh what oh no the deluxe premium oh how lovely you know so he turns up and uh to interview hawkwin for god's sake hawkwin who would spike everybody with acid i remember their drummer i can't remember his name but at the time the drummer at the time can't remember his name but his little finger had this had this uh he'd grown his fingernail really long mm-hmm. like a claw so that um, you'd be in the dressing room and he'd pull out his packet and he'd go, and he'd to your nose. You'd be like, yeah. <laughs> dirty, black, disgusting claw with fuck knows what powder on there. And you'd go, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, uh, and hope for the best. So Mal- and, and Malcolm was doing this thing for a magazine called Record Mirror, which was a, it was a pop magazine. They didn't do rock. It was all about, you know, boy bands and uh, that kind of thing. And um, the editor had rung to say, we, we've hired this guy to, to, to write about rock and metal and all this kind of stuff. We're going, wow, okay. Um, so I'm going to send him over to do a piece on Hawkwind. We nearly fell over, you know. <laughs> you know, this wasn't Donny Osmond. This was Hawkwind, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, right, we're going to take care of this guy because if we show him a good time, he'll do our other bands. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
So he shows up and we're like, man, do a line. We're, oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. Very quite hyper, quite hyper. Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. And we're thinking all he lacks is the ringlets and the beard, you know. That's cool. A lot of Jewish people in the music business, all good. Um, that really wasn't a thing. What concerned us was he didn't want the Coke. So we're like, well, everybody's always smoking a joint and that. So, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, no, oh, no, no, thank you, no, thank you. Well, you'll have some Courvoisier. No, 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 thank you. No. Champagne. No, 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 no. And we were really like, fuck's wrong with this guy? So I said, uh, well, you must want something. Well, what can we get you? He said, um, donuts. I, I like donuts. So, so in those days, we couldn't, we couldn't send the girl out to buy a couple of donuts. She came back with a tray with like 20 different <laughs> donuts. I mean, Malcolm, look what we got you, a fucking tray of donuts. Shove 20 of them in your nose now, you know. <laughs> and it quickly takes one. And what can we get you to go with that? Some wine, a no, cup of tea, cup of tea. <laughs> you know, I don't know if we like this guy, you know. Uh-huh. But he turned out to be sincere, genuine. He wrote a lovely story. And yeah, we stayed in touch. He did. He did write about some of our other crazy bands. And then the wheel goes forward. A couple of years later, I'm back writing, and uh, I brought him in to do some stories for me on a magazine I was editing. And then a couple Kerrang. of years go. Uh, no, this was uh, before Kerrang. Okay. Um, this was uh, what used to be called a poster magazine. So you buy this. It looked like a magazine, color magazine. You'd buy it but it would fold out mm. into a big poster. Mm. But there would be, before you folded it out, there would be stories and yes. interviews. Oh, those and, are the it days. Was, it was called Metal Mania. <laughs> of course and it, um, I, it had one staff member, me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't called Metal Mania. Sorry, sorry. It was called Metal Fury. That was Oh, even Metal better. Fury. Metal Fury, yes. <laughs> so I so because I was the only writer, uh I, I used to do a got it was monthly, I used to do a gossip column every month written by a guy called Frank Fury. Me. Yes. Um after I forget in a Marvel comic or something, there was a Frank Fury, like sort of Captain America type dude. Uh-huh. And um but I needed a little bit of help. So I, I brought Malcolm in to, to do some stuff. Um, and eventually he took over as Frank. Frank Fury was this completely objectionable metalhead, you know, who could say all the things that you could, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Iron Maiden, you know, homosexuals. <laughs> yeah, you call that rock? No! I'd wipe my ass on that, you know. Right. Anything to be funny, you know. Right. Um, this, is, this is the late 70s, early 80s. And eventually I fell out of that. Drugs took over and I fell out of that. And Malcolm took over. And then the wheel goes forward another year or two. And I think Malcolm edited a magazine called Metal Mania, something mm, like that. Mm. Anyway, da, 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 da. And yeah. eventually I need a job. And um, I know Malcolm now is working at Kerrang. So I call him. And through Malcolm, I started, long story short, I started doing some stuff for Kerrang. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea it would turn into a thing. I, I thought this would be couple months but very quickly uh, it was a very small office and malcolm and i shared a desk and he still didn't drink was still with the yamal car one time 
uh, is it called the Tabernacle? Once a year, um, mm. in the Jewish faith, there's a, a it's a month or it's some weeks or something where the family takes its meals and spends its time. I, I want to say Tabernacle, but I don't know if that is the right name. But it was like an, a building out in the, out in the garden. Yeah. And they were moving. They were moving. And he needed someone to help him move the tabernacle, if that's the right word. And I said I would help him, thinking, you know, I'd be one of the guys. No, just me and him, mm-hmm. me and him. <laughs> and he had arms like pipe cleaners. He was not a strong, <laughs> physically strong guy. Right. And I'm this guy wasted from years just coming out of that. Oh, my God, man. At the end of it, the two of us were like, you know, trying to dismantle this kind of little building and put it on the back of a truck and fuck me, man. (laughs) So, um, but but what used to happen was, uh, so you and me are sitting across from each other at the big desk Mm -hmm. table. At the head of it is Malcolm, then there's me, and you are the designer whose name was Stephen Jewell, but quickly picked up the nickname Crusher. Okay. Um, as a joke, because he, he looked like your mother's weird aunt, okay? So we used to call him Crusher as a joke, you know? Um, but he turned into that guy, and he was a crazy party guy. So what used to happen was at a certain point, in about 84, Crusher and I every day would bring in a Perrier bottle and empty it down the sink and fill it with tequila. And that would sit on the desk between you and I, and every now and again, thirsty work, you know. (laughs) um, But but Malcolm would never touch. He didn't drink. Uh, And then it was a really hot, hot summer's day. He'd been somewhere interviewing someone, and he rushed in, pouring with sweat, really desperately hot, he saw the Perrier bottle, even though he knew what we did with it. He just, I guess he just saw the Perrier bottle and he picked it up, dum, 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 and he literally went, go, 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 go. <laughs> ah! And we're going, fuck Malcolm, that's, that's a key, what the fuck, you know? And I don't want to claim huge responsibility, but he started drinking after that. That's and, um, what I thought. And, yeah. and because he wasn't a drinker, he'd never drunk beer, he didn't drink wine, he didn't really like alcohol, but I think it made him feel more part of the scene. I'm sure. And I'm so, sure. so he would always drink spirits yeah. with like loads of vodka or something with pineapple juice in it. Yeah. And I think that, I know, that had a big, it had a bad effect over a long period because you and I having a beer, He's having a treble vodka and pineapple juice, you know. <laughs> so we've had three or four beers, and we're good. We're yeah. good. He's had three or four of those, and he's turned into a fucking lunatic, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that went on for many, 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 many years. And though I can't say for certain, he didn't. He wasn't a guy who had a good diet. And I think, you know, I think he was sixty-six when he died. I think. Yeah, that's, right. that's what I saw too. It's, uh, I think it's a shame. Did, that poor, poor guy just, uh, just you know. Mm-hmm. I've known up. people die a lot younger than that, that were like that, and they died a lot younger. True. But he was, uh, he was a really, really one of a kind. Super, yes. super smart guy. Super smart. Okay. Well, good. Uh, now we've been talking for a while, so. 
tell me song number two. And then I have a lot of heavy metal questions for you. All right. Well, I was going to say Stooges, uh, Down on the Street. Yes. Funhouse. Good one. That to me, uh, I know, you know, they are not considered a metal band. But that to me is about the most hardcore kind of met- metallic sound. Agreed. Ever. Agreed. And I used to, I used to say that when I years ago, I used to say when I die, I want that album buried in the coffin with me, mm. because I just found it unbeatable. Yeah. And so uncompromising. Yeah. I agree. Um, I, I bought it for like fifty cents in a in a record store that was getting rid of all the records they couldn't sell. <laughs> and because it was fifty cents, how bad can it be? Sure. I must have been fifteen or sixteen, and I found it really too much, man. too 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 much. But as the years went by, the kind of poetry of it, the beauty of it, the brutality, completely uncompromising. Stayed with me, and 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 uh, you know the, the track Funhouse. You could choose any of the tracks on the album. I tend to go for Down on the Street because it's just such a damn sexy, it is cool track. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be my next pick. Good. I'm with you. I think it's one of the greatest albums ever made. Better than Raw Power or uh, oh, yeah. debut. Totally better. Yeah. Better, better, better. Way better. Yeah. And those are good albums. Yeah, yeah they are. They are. But nothing sounds like like that album, and no one's ever achieved that kind of sound. You're right, whether it's metal or punk or whatever it is, whatever is being put on display in that album has never been perfected quite like it has on that album. I, I'm totally oh, with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. let's talk about Led Zeppelin for a minute. Now, I have to confess, Nick, I every time I see you on TV, I think I need to read some of Mick's books and then I never get around to it. And then when you said you were open to coming on the show, I it happened so quickly. I thought, shoot, I haven't read any of the books. But every friend I have tells me I need to read the Zeppelin book. So yeah. let's. I want to talk about Zeppelin for a minute. Um, you you talk about them on your podcast a lot, which is great. Main. Let's start here because this is the main thing I want to know about. What do you think about their appearance at Live Aid? Because they always Robert and Jimmy especially always say how garbage it was and they blame Phil Collins. And if you watch the clip, it had nothing to do with Phil Collins. It was because to me anyway, Jimmy appeared to be completely out of his mind playing completely sludgy all over the place. He's the one who ruined that show and he doesn't want to admit it. 
So what's your take well, on that? Well, you, you just nailed it. You okay. totally nailed it. He was completely wasted, very, very sloppy. The thing with Jimmy is, uh, I was there, by the way. I was Where? standing side of the stage when they were on. Wow. I walked to the stage with them. And Jimmy has always been a sloppy player. One of the great, amazing things about Zeppelin, which was understood at the time, but I think as time has gone by, becomes more of an extraordinary thing because stuff just isn't like that anymore. But back then when, you know, PA systems had only just come in, uh, lighting systems were very, very rudimentary compared to what we've got today. Uh, it was quite common to go to a gig and 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 it'd be a totally shit experience, and then go to another gig and it'd be amazing, you know. So it, it, these days everything's on disc, on on stream. You, you hit a button on a computer and it's all perfect. But back then you didn't know what to expect, and if you saw Richie Blackmore in Deep Purple, you knew Blackmore would always be a great guitarist every time you saw him. Uh, and, and and similar people, you know. Page, um, no. I mean, you could go and see Jimmy play, and he would be absolutely terrible. Terrible. Mm -hmm. And the very next night be the greatest thing you'd ever seen. Mm. You know, he wasn't a Hendrix or a Clapton or even a Beck. He wasn't a virtuoso. But he was more of a producer. He, he was, uh, you know, this sonic monk you know he uh he, he talked to me many times about how he wanted to get the air to move in the room mm. and that would always be to do with texture and what he called color and the integration and when they were recording they always recorded live they played as a band in the studio particularly in the early days and for him it was where you put the microphones and he used to talk about you know when you bring the drums in uh, and if you listen back to so many of those early Zeppelin albums, you suddenly realize, oh, my God, that's right. There are no drums until mm -hmm. you bring the drums in, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so he was a genius like that, but he was really sloppy player always. Mm. And Live Aid, yeah, he was still, I mean, the guy had been on heroin for over 10 years at that point. Mm. He nearly died. I mean, he came real close to dying. One of the reasons Paul Rogers uh, got together with Jimmy in the firm, which was the group Jimmy was in when Live Aid happened, was to basically try and save Jimmy's life. Really? Uh. Yeah, oh, totally. Because it was pretty much accepted that Jimmy wasn't coming back. I wonder. Uh, Jimmy, I, I got to know Jimmy very well a couple of years after Live Aid. And he told me, he said, uh, I didn't even touch my guitar for three, four years. Mm -hmm. He said, and then when one day I, I rode it to get it, he said he went to the case and it was gone. And I thought, oh, well, that's it. It's a sign, you know, because Jimmy is big into signs. Big, yeah. big. I could see. Um, so that's, it's over. Yeah. And then miraculously it reappeared and jimmy also talks often in allegory so you don't know how much of this is actual fact or just how he sees it but the guitar reappeared and a guy called phil carson who was the president of atlantic records everywhere outside of america had been very instrumental with zeppelin uh, signed acdc 
uh, many other things. Phil uh, and bad company, and you know, so Phil, Paul Rogers, bad company, and 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 Paul has had his own experiences, and got them together. And it's all about just getting Jimmy out of the goddamn house. Wow, something to do, something yeah. to think about. But the first Firm album came out, I believe, in like 84, end of 84. About that. So by the time Live Aid comes down in the summer of 85, they are already a big touring act in America. But Jimmy has always been about Zeppelin, always. It seems that way. I was going to yeah. ask you about this. I pulled out, um, I listened to the, I don't know how I, or why I missed it, but I recently was listening to the Coverdale Page album for the first time. And it, it was really good. And I just thought, this is, why is it that Robert just keeps on keeping on? He does what he wants. He can, he puts out big log. No one cares. Uh, no one cares that he's doing something different. He always seems to be following his muse and seems to be fine doing that. Jimmy can't find a collab. First of all, he seems reliant on a collaborator in order to get yeah. his message across, whatever it is. And he can't seem to stick with one long enough whether it's David Coverdale or Paul Rogers or that terrible Outrider album or whatever. He can't <laughs> seem to, like, why get, Why can't Jimmy find something to do and do it for a while and do it well? What's the problem? In the Zeppelin book, uh, I think part two of the book is called The Curse of King Midas. Mm. And The Curse of King Midas is an occult Curse is a is a ritual, you know. Um, curse is ritual magic, utility. Uh, let's hope the good this year. Um, and then, of course, it gets more finessed into may my own projects become, you know, very successful and, and in full bloom. And then the the thing you inflict on on other people and other things. Mm. And one of the main curses is called Curse of Midas. And symbolically what that is, is you turn the subject into a gold statue. Mm. And the symbol of that is, and this is what Kenneth Anger did to Jimmy Page. He, he cursed him with the curse of King Midas. Now, I'm not going to say, and that's what happened, but that is what anger did. And the curse of, is interesting because the curse of King Midas is it turns you into a gold statue. So you are this thing to behold. You are this thing where people go, my God, did you see the gold? Sta whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. But you're a statue. You can't do anything. You, you can't move. You can't speak. You can't respond. You are frozen. And I think that is exactly where Jimmy is. There's a Charles Dickens character. There's a character called Miss Havisham. Oh, right. She's this immensely rich lady who uh, lives in this amazing kind of gothic mansion. Great expectations. The book yeah. is great expectations. And the, the young boy, Pip, is sent to he's from a poor family and he's sent to her house uh because his parents are dead and he's going to work for her and and all this stuff 
But Miss Havisham is this older lady, very grand, very rich, has every imaginable wealth and comfort. But on her wedding day, she was ditched. The, the, the guy didn't show up. And she never got over it. And there are now cobwebs and dust. And she's kind of like a vampire, except she's human. And everything for Miss Havisham, the clocks, everything stopped the day she was jilted at the altar. Mm. That's who I think Jimmy Page is. He is Miss Havisham. He was the most gifted uh, an educated musician. You know, he, he loved what he used to call, to, you tell me he called it his CIA, uh, Celtic Indian Asia. He knew all about folk music, Indian modal music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he played on, in the, in the 60s, before he was even in the Yardbirds, as a session guy, he played on 60% of all the records that hit the top 10 between like 62 and 66. Crazy. This is a super, super genius level musician. Mm-hmm. Now this super, super genius level musician and producer and writer and visionary hasn't released an album since 1997. Mm-hmm. And that was a page plan album, which was basically for Jimmy, the next best thing to let him play. Yep. He worked with Paul. Uh, that was okay but it wasn't Zeppelin. And the minute Live Aid come, came along, he fucking ditched Rogers and the rest like that, like that. Mm. And Rogers saw that and went, okay, we've got one more album to do, then I'm out of here. Mm. Coverdale. Coverdale was tickled pink to work with Jimmy. Coverdale still to this day says to me, if you're talking to Jimmy, tell him anytime he wants me, mm. I'm there. Mm. He's not interested. He wants Robert. He wants Robert. Yeah. Robert does not want Jimmy. Uh, and for good reason, for good reason, because Robert has spent his entire solo career, which is now over 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Zeppelin were together for 10, 11 years, 12 years maybe. Robert's had a 40-year solo career, and he's still Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And no matter what he does with his world music or Alison Krauss or whatever, 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 he cannot get rid of Led Zeppelin. And it drives him nuts. It kills him. You know, people don't look at Robert with the same cachet. They look at Jack or uh, Bowie or uh, you know, any of the great male rock artists. And it burns him up. And Jimmy is just waiting like a spider for Robert to come crawling back and then we'll do Led Zeppelin. And um, Robert described it as a completely soulless experience. Because Jimmy really is. Jimmy has not moved on. Yeah. And whatever the reasons for that, I think many, many reasons. But um, he's, like a, he's like a mother who loses a son and she can never, ever get her life moving again. Mm-hmm. And that's Jimmy. I, I actually saw him a couple of weeks ago at the funeral of a friend, another writer, Pete Murkowski. And um, same as ever, same old Jimmy doing fuck all with his life nothing yeah yeah. you know uh, he could have been miles davis he could have been john coltrane he could have been bob dylan you know i mean or lou reed or leonard cohen you know he could have been someone who right now could be making the best music of his entire life yeah yeah 
nothing to do with Led Zeppelin, all to do with this incredible range of influences and references that was available to him as a musician. And he's not interested. He's just, he's fucked up somewhere in his head and it's all about Zeppelin. And the world has moved on and he hasn't. Jeez. Uh, mm, Yeah. That is rough. I want, that's, uh, everything you're saying makes sense. And if anyone would know it was you, what, where does John Paul Jones fit into all this? Do they not involve him on the page and plant thing because that's too much like getting Led Zeppelin back together or do they just not like him? Jimmy and John have been friends a long time. Uh, I I got to know Jimmy pretty well in the late eighties, early nineties. And he was a lonely guy. He just didn't have many friends. Um, I had a weekly TV show at the time in the UK called the monsters of rock. And uh, I was a big writer and got invited to everything. And Jimmy was often my plus one. Mm. I took him to see Alice Cooper one time. Alice Cooper was doing a, a secret show. You know, everybody knew, but, you know, a secret show at a club in London. And Jimmy wanted to go. And I'm like, well, come with me. Mm. So he turned up in a Rolls Royce, chauffeur driven, champagne in the back. I'm at my little apartment in London. I get in the car, I'm like, okay. So we go to the club. Uh, we go to the guest list. Mick Wall plus one. Jimmy Page. <laughs> so, so we're walking into the club and this joint is packed because it's Alice Cooper's secret show. And it's a club, so it's a stand-up. Uh, and then, the, so there's the floor with the bars and everybody going crazy. And then you go up the steps, up the stairway, it's like the balcony area where there's another bar and it's still people standing packed and packed. You cannot move. But as I'm walking up the stairs with him, people are going, <laughs> and it's like the sea is parting. The sea is parting. And you can see them going, it's Jimmy Page. Yeah. And a guy. <laughs> it's Jimmy Page and some guy. It's Jimmy Page. And this guy, you know, (laughs) we go up the stairs, we go right in front of the balcony because it's like the Red Sea, you know. Mm. He seems oblivious. He never comes out with security. I'm the security. And I'm like five foot six, okay. (laughs) But in those days, I I weighed jack shit. I weighed more Uh now than I did when I was 29 or whatever. Yeah. And um, it was quite funny. So I said, do you want a drink? He was like, yes. fight to get to the bar i got a couple of beers i fight to get back and we've got the beer and alice cooper comes on now you've got to imagine you know i've been in the business for 10 years at this point i've been a writer a record company guy a pr uh, i had a tv show a radio show i've written books i don't dance at gigs okay mm-hmm. uh I've just seen too fucking many gigs. I don't care it's Alice Cooper in a club. I'm pleased to be here, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to lose my shit when he walks on stage, okay? Right. I just saw him yesterday on my show. We, we know each other. You know. Alice Cooper comes on. Alice Cooper comes on. Here's Jimmy Page. Wow! I say it's, it's not schools out, but say it's schools out. Yeah, dun, 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 dun. Here's Jimmy. Dun, 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 dun. I'm like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> Fuck. 
Are you fucking kidding me? Can you just kill the... What are you, a fucking teenage girl? Stop. You know, no. And this goes on. And suddenly, um, you know, like if you get a drop of water in your hair, I had hair back then. You get a drop uh-huh. of water in your hair. What, what's that? You know. Uh-huh. Happens again. Happens again. I'm like, some fucker is flicking beer at me, right? So I turn around. And it's packed. So like two or three people back, it's Lemmy from Motorhead. And he's got his beer. And he's he's flicking it at me like this. And I look at him. He goes. And I went, I fucking no. I fucking no. And, and he goes, he goes, I went, I went. You want to say hello? You went, yes, I'll fucking come through then, you know. <laughs> so Lemmy comes in and I go, uh, Jimmy, uh, this is Lemmy. Jimmy goes, Lemmy, I've always wanted to meet you. And Lemmy's like, oh. they don't already know each other? Crazy. That's I'm wild. sure they probably did, but this is Jimmy coming out of 15 years of True. fucking Zeppelin, heroin, True. fuck knows what else, you know. Yeah. Um, or maybe he didn't say I've always... Yeah, you know what? I don't know if he had met him. I mean, Zeppelin were just from another planet and, and yeah. Hawkwind were the spaceship that broke Good down, point. you know? Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of a relief because now they are vibing uh-huh. and I can actually kind of take a little break and not be on Jimmy Page duty. Uh, uh, and that's kind of what happened, you know? I did in the end kind of not pass him off, but introduce him to one or two people that I knew would have more time mm. to spend with. One of those. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so I don't even know how Amazing. to go on to that. But, um, uh, well, no, that's great. I asked you about, uh, I asked you about what's going on with him. Now you mentioned, um, you mentioned in listening to all of your podcasts recently, you mentioned this guy's name, but I don't remember if there was a story attached and it made me wonder what, you know, where is John Deacon? You, oh, his name question. came up in one of the one of your episodes recently, and I thought if anyone knows where John Deacon is or what he's doing, <laughs> maybe Mick knows. John's living a really ordinary life. You would walk straight past him in the street. You wouldn't know. Oh, I know. Before we get into this, you're asking me about John Paul Jones. Oh yeah, that's right, say, that's right. That's right. That's right. Back in those days, every Christmas, Jimmy had a party, a Christmas party. Like, not at his house. He'd hire a venue out near his house. He lived out in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And um, loads of people would go. Never Robert, uh, but me, and always John Paul Jones. Mm-hmm. And there'd be people like Chris Slade from The Firm and uh, uh, various people Jimmy had worked with over the years. Never Robert, but always John Paul Jones. And at a certain time of the night, there was a little stage set up and they would all get up and jam. And so John Paul and Jimmy have always been close. They were friends long before Robert came onto the scene in Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Jimmy and John Paul played on all those Donovan records and uh, you know, Engelbert Humperdinck and God knows what else, mm-hmm. you know. John Paul is not as desperate as Jimmy to be in Led Zeppelin. John Paul is classically trained, a highly educated musician, can play any instrument you put in his hands, any instrument, classical, jazz, modern rock. But here's what John Paul will not tolerate, 
is Robert and Jimmy doing stuff without him. Mm. You know, it's just not right. Mm -hmm. So Live Aid, John Paul Jones was not invited to Live Aid, had no part of Live Aid. Robert said he'd only do it if John Paul Jones wasn't there. Oh, what? And John Paul Jones turned up. John Paul Jones forced his way in. So what are they going to do? Make a big show of saying no? Yeah. And then with Paige Plant, Sorry, I don't know if Robert did say he didn't want John Paul at Live Aid, but it was just inferred that mm-hmm. he wasn't on the list, you know. Mm-hmm. With Paige Plant, Plant specifically said, I will not do this if John Paul Jones is involved. Because de facto, if John Paul Jones is involved, it is Led Zeppelin. Right. You know. Right. And you can't call it Paige Plant Jones. You know, yeah. it's just... But in Robert's mind, it was really important that it not be Led Zeppelin because Led Zeppelin was always Jimmy's baby. Mm. Robert Plant had no say in what went on in Led Zeppelin. Mm. None. And Robert, uh, uh, in terms of Paige Plant, at this point, he feels he's bringing as much to the table as Paige. Uh, Paige needs it more than he does. Truth is, they both need it. Plant's solo career was was dwindling on the vine. It, it's previous summer, it'd be the opening act for Lenny Kravitz, you know. Oof, that's right. Um, and also, Plant hated it when Paige got together with Coverdale. Hated it. So really? jealous. Yeah, he didn't want to... He was like that girl. That's, I don't know if you've yeah. ever had this with, with girls, right? Like, you're together a long time, you break up, she does not want to know... And then you start seeing another girl. Now she's back on the fucking yeah, scene. Exactly. She still doesn't really want to be with you. She just want you to be with anybody else. Yeah, exactly. Plus, like all of us, Plant needs a check. And Paige Plant becomes huge. Madison Square, da-da-da. But no John Paul Jones. And uh, John Paul Jones is not a stupid guy. He's not a drunk. John Paul Jones left the band in 1973 and they covered it up until they could persuade him to come back. The the first Bad Company album was recorded at Headley Grange, the old spooky house in England, Mm -hmm. because Zeppelin was supposed to go in and make the follow-up to Houses of the Holy, but John Paul Jones bailed after the 73 US tour, the one we see in the movie. Yeah, Uh, right. John Paul Jones walked out at the end of that and said, enough of this shit. Fuck all of that. Wow. And it took them months and months and months to kind of coax him back. And in the meantime, Peter Grant put Bad Company into Headley Grange and they made the first Bad Company album. Mm. Paul Rogers told me a great story about Headley Grange. People were, it was haunted and da 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 Paul Rogers, who, who hasn't had a drink or a drug in decades, he meditates... Very serious, you know, beautiful man, very serious. He told me that when they were doing the first Bad Company album, Headley Grange, he said, for sure, this is a place of, he said, I'll give you an example. He said, every morning I would come down the stairs for breakfast. You've got to imagine this old Gothic mansion, you know, it'd be coming 300 years old. He'd be coming down the stairs. There was a painting in the stairwell of sheep, in a field, grazing in a field, like a local beauty spot. This old oil painting, you know, sheep grazing, trees, sunlight. Right. And he said, every night I went to bed, it was wolves. 
walking around in a forest with moonlight. And I'm like, get the fuck. You know, he's like, you could tell he wasn't joking. Right, right. Oh, yeah. There was one room in that house which was so disturbing. No one would go in there. Guess which room Jimmy always insisted that he slept in? Of course, that room. That's it. Yep. Um, I wanted to ask you one question about Bad Company. I wasn't planning on it, but it, I just thought I just thought of it. Before he passed away, I had Brian Howe on here, um, the guy who took over for Paul in Bad Company, and he was saying he he and the is it Simon and Mick, the other guys that were still around. Simon Kirk, the drummer, and Mick Ralphs, the guitarist. Right. They do not like each other, and um, they prefer to just cut out the whole Brian Howe period of Bad Company and pretend it never happened. Do you know why they feel that way? Brian, now he was a Trump supporter, so I loved him until I learned that, and then uh, he was, I lost a lot of respect. But anyway, uh, without getting too political, so I don't know if what he's saying is true, but according to him, he wrote a lot of those songs that kept them afloat, and the least they could have done was show him some respect and be nice about it. And they weren't, and they were, and uh, do you know anything about any of this? For sure. But some of it is so dark, I don't know Ooh. if I can share it with you in a public forum. Ooh. But basically, okay. as far as the band, the real band were concerned, Brian Howe was bad people. He did mm. bad things and uh, sick things. Mm. And that was the root of that. And the ed added tension, the professional tension, came from the fact that at the end of the day, Bad Company is Paul Rogers, Simon Kirk, Mick Rouse, and Boz Burrell. And Brian Howe was lucky to be in that band. If that band had been called anything else, maybe they'd have had a hit, maybe they'd have done well. Mm -hmm. But People didn't buy tickets to hear them do Holy Water or whatever it was called. <laughs> you know, they, they, they wanted Can't Get Enough, right. Feel Like Making Love, right. Bad Company. Um, and, I, I, you know, so there's always, I mean, don't forget, this is Paul Rogers' band. Mm -hmm. He formed that band. And now he's got this guy saying, no, I'm the real bad company and Paul Rogers is a bad guy. And, yeah. But Brian Howe was, and it was, um, there's a saying in the business, you know, he was an interesting bunch of people. <laughs> Got it. Ooh, I okay. We're gonna go off uh, the record one of these times. I want to hear the real story because he, he yeah, really, we should do a thing off the record. Yeah, we should because he really charmed me. I mean, I like that. I of course it doesn't. It's a different animal altogether than classic Bad Company. But I um I, I really like those songs, and he was nothing but nice to me. And then afterwards. You know, I'd see things he'd post on social media before he died about being pro-Trump. And he would kick people out of his band if they weren't Republicans and stuff like that. And I just was like, screw this guy, you know? And then the <laughs> poor guy died. But anyway. Um, okay, well, hey, John, listen, oh, we're go all, ahead. We're all, we're, all, we're all going to die one day. It doesn't we make are. you a good person because you die. That's true. It makes you another guy that died, you know? <laughs> um, I, I know true. music journalists who are like a generation younger than me, and they only discovered Bad Company in the Brian Howe era, 
and they don't get it either because yeah. they, I made a little joke. But there's some great songs um, on those records, mm-hmm. but. I completely understand why the other guys really want to distance themselves because okay. there's some serious shit went down that nobody knows about. And okay. It's not good. Good. All right. You can tell me offline <laughs> sometime. I, I love this. I love this. Okay. Tell me about John Deacon then. Where, where He's living in the suburbs somewhere, just very yeah. quietly. Yeah. There, 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 was a, there was a picture of him in the newspaper a few years ago. And he just looked like a, a guy walking home from the pub one night. You know, he just uh, nondescript. Uh, I'm not saying he's he is nondescript at all. I'm just saying he did not look. He didn't look like Brian May going home from a night out or Roger Taylor. You know, right? right. Um, it was just a, a guy, just a guy. And from what Brian and Roger have told me, he just isn't interested. He just doesn't want to know. He doesn't need the dough. A showbiz accountant that used to work with me once said to me, they've never got enough money. There's no such thing as enough. The word enough does not exist. But I think that's not just true of rock stars. I think that's true of everybody. Wealthy people, it is. Uh, there's a reason they got wealthy. Can you imagine saying to Trump, you know, enough. No. Don, Don, don't you think that's enough? Never. Get the fuck. So I think, I don't know with John, but I think he obviously had an opportunity. He still gets a piece. Mm-hmm. You know, We Will Rock You, the stage show, when it first launched 20 years ago in London, was making, I think, £750,000 a week, oh. which in those days was about $1.2 million. And that was every week in London. Wow. That's before you get to the United States. That's before yeah. you get to the franchise show that's in 30, 40 countries around the world. Yeah. And John gets a piece of all of that. So I think financially there's no motive. And I think John, from what I hear, is not feeling the band without Freddie. And um, yeah, when back, it's a bit like the John Paul Jones in the sense that, you know, Zeppelin with the four guys was whatever it was. Uh, one of them died. Mm-hmm. And sometime later, the others decide they'll get back together. But the one that doesn't join is the one who's like, ah, okay, this is just you two guys. Yeah, You're going to call the shots. This is your deal. You know what? I'm not feeling it. Yeah. Um, now, I, I can't tell you definitively that's what happened with John Deacon, but f- figure it out. Well, it seems that way. Yeah. If a guy doesn't come to the party, is it because he thinks that's going to be a great party? <laughs> because he's like, eh, yeah. Eh, you know? yeah. I agree. And I mean, Queen are arguably bigger now than they've ever been. And yeah, they, it's, I mean, you can have, you can be rich. John has decided that he's fine being rich enough. And so let Brian yeah. and Roger be out there pimping the queen name and brand for the rest of their lives. As long as he gets his little sliver of that, he can stay home and do whatever he wants. And his little sliver, you know, one year of his little sliver, you and I could share and it keep us going for the rest of our lives. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Um, and in a way, you know, in a way you've got to respect it. You know, he doesn't yeah. need the adulation. I, I do think respect if you look it. At yeah, yeah, I, I'm a very talented guy. You know, another one of these, like John Paul, another one of these guys who, okay, he plays the bass, but this guy can write, he can sing, he plays all kinds of 
instruments, super talented, smart guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I, let me just tell, say one thing. Um, yes. When I chose the Stooges, I didn't know you were going to talk about Zepp because one of the other tracks was a Zeppelin song. I oh, then I let's do it here. I was just going to say it's time for track three. What is it? Well, I was going to ask for Sick Again by Led okay. Zeppelin from Typical Graffiti. kind of already said what i would have said about that you know i love it that it's called sick again Uh it's all about them at their most debauched in la yeah i forget the lyrics but it's all about teenage queens and Uh on the scene and you know the whole debauched last days of rome you know uh, caesar in his chariot you know and i think it's very underrepresented you know isn't the obvious zeppelin track no it's not it's not but it is a very, very cool, slinky, evil track, and 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 it's fun, bad fun. You've got to yeah. love some bad fun, you know. And Zeppelin and the Kings of. I agree. Good pick. I recently <laughs> did a ranking of my of Led Zeppelin albums too. Like I said with the Bowie one, I think you can't beat four. Four is up there, and then I, yeah. I've always really liked three and Houses of the Holy. So that Houses was two, and I am not. I don't get off on the first couple albums. I think they're just sort of boring, bluesy, sludgy rock. I mean, they're okay, but compared to everything else, I know. Nick's looking at me with these big eyes like, what? And uh, so I had number one, I had Led Zeppelin one as the bottom of my list, then Coda. And then from there, it gets, you know, it's two and it gets better and better. But to me. Um, The first album isn't a favorite. There's some great stuff on it. I think it can only really be fully appreciated in the context of the time. Right. Uh, a music journalist called Chris Welch, who worked at the Melody Maker when Zeppelin made that first album. And Melody Maker in the UK was, it was a weekly music paper, but it was like a newspaper. You know, they were based in Fleet Street. Mm-hmm. They were a super, super big deal. Musicians came to them to be interviewed. So, like, Chris told me, like, in about 65, 66, you know, the, uh, he got a phone call at his desk. Oh, hi, Chris. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a Bob Dylan in reception uh, to see you. Uh, and Chris would be like, uh, I'm on the other line. Tell, tell him to wait a few minutes. I'll be out in a minute, you know. Uh-huh. Um, he told me about the time Bowie came up to the office. Chris, we've got a David, David, Bowie, Bowie. Bowie. And Chris is like, yeah, 
Tell him to hang on. I'll be out in 10 minutes. <laughs> so Chris comes out. This is hunky dory. Or maybe uh-huh. managed to the world. Chris comes out. Here's Bowie in a fucking dress, okay, with long blonde hair. Right. And this is 1970-71. You know, this, this is not cool. We are not in the era of they, I identify as this and that. So fucking dude in a dress, yeah. okay, waiting for me in front of all the other Fleet Street journalists who are all <laughs> ass-kicking drunks, you know. And, uh, and they used to take the uh, musicians to the local pub to interview them. Uh-huh. So Chris is like, oh, man, I've got to take this fucking guy in a dress to the, to the fucking pub, you know, where all my friends are. And, and as they're walking in, everyone's going, you know, <laughs> you know, who's the chick, Chris? Who's your sexy little friend? Oh, she's a pretty one. You can imagine. It's like a redneck bar. Uh-huh. But in 71, a regular bar, that's our regular bar. He told me that, um, so Jimmy Page comes up. Uh, Chris says, a Jimmy Page in reception? Yeah. <laughs> he's brought him the first album. So he brings him in because they're going to put it on the record players. He can't just go straight to the pub. He'd known Jimmy in the Yardbirds. Chris knew Hendrix and everybody. And uh, so Jimmy brings it in. And they put it on the record player in the office. And they put the needle on the groove. And the first, uh, what was the first of Good times? I think good times, so. bad times. I think so. Can't remember. They put the needle on. And the first thing you hear is, dan, 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 dan. And Chris said, room shook. He said, we've never heard anything like it because this is must be 68, 69. You know, they, they barely got into stereo. Yeah. You know, probably wasn't even a stereo in the office. I don't know. Probably was an early one. But records are still being made in mono. The the Beatles just one year before had done Sergeant Pepper on a four track. And he said, we just couldn't believe just the kind of production values of this thing. Yeah. So it was immediately a big talking point. Okay, so I get that, but as a record, by the time I found it, it was for me, it's not one of their strongest. Zeppelin 2, Zeppelin 2, I think is, yeah, I think that is a monster. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's not as polished. Mm-hmm. There's no stairway. As you say, it's very much kind of one track. But then so was the Stooges. And I'm not saying True. Zeppelin were the Stooges, but, but I think they had that kind of brutal brutal that brutality that yeah you know hadn't it was all recycled blues yeah ripoffs and but it was done in a real kind of thunderous way but for me i once said to jimmy um you know if an alien came down or someone had never ever heard led zeppelin which record do you pick to play them to kind of say this is what all the fuss is about this is why people talk about this you've got to play four you got to, whether it's your favorite or not. Exactly. If they don't like that, they don't fucking like that Zeppelin. Exactly. But the first one I ever bought was Houses of the Holy. Uh, and I still have a huge affection for that record. Yep, it's so yep. vibrant. It's so colorful. It's so bouncy. I love that record. I do too. Um, physical graffiti, I think, I in my mind, I've always thought of as, you know, one of their best because... It's such a huge, epic thing. But do you know what Jimmy Page's favorite Led Zeppelin album is? Mm, I was going to say three, but I don't know what. Present. 
Really? Oh, wow. Why? Yeah. Did he say? He did say, but as usual, that wasn't, you know, yeah. why. Oh, okay. Here's why. Here's why. Here's why. If you listen to Presence, like I had to for the book, trying to rethink the whole thing and try and see it as, as a whole, you know. Uh-huh. Um, there's no acoustic songs. Mm. There's... It's not at all as as light and colourful and beautiful as Houses of the Holy. It's quite dirgy. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that was Page was in his absolute heroin plume. Mm. Uh, and the thing about heroin is, like all drugs, I guess, but particularly heroin, there's a there's a honeymoon period. There's a there's a long period where I mean Miles Davis, Bob Dylan, John Lennon. If you take out all the records from your collection that were made by people on Smack, you don't have much of a record collection left, you know. Um, Page was in that stage where he was just the biggest, richest, weirdest, darkest, <laughs> fucked up rock star in the world, and he reveled in it. You know, he would be up for, I think he once told me nine days was the record. He didn't eat. He took a shit ton of heroin and cocaine. And he was performing ritual magic. He is on the other side of the rainbow at this point. Yeah. Plant, Plant has had his terrible accident. Plant's still in a wheelchair and they're making presents. John Paul Jones is kind of like, whatever, you know, I'm not, in, I'm not digging this. I do what needs to be done, but I'm not even going to stay in the same hotel. I'm only going to be in the studio when I'm needed. Bonham is also smacked out. Bonham is out of his fucking brain. And Plant is in a wheelchair. Plant doesn't know if he's ever going to walk again. His voice is already starting to go. And um, it was all Jimmy's album. It was all Jimmy all the time. And Jimmy told me, he said, I used to sleep on the floor in the studio. I think they made that album in about three weeks or something. Really? Oh, yeah. But Page was in that studio the whole time. And he was either up for day after day after day, night after night after night, or he was unconscious for 48 hours on the studio floor sleeping under the console. Mm-hmm. And he loved it. Mm-hmm. He loved it. He was I like bet he a does. lizard bathing in blood. Yes. You know, he was like a vampire on a permanent midnight drive. You know? Yes, and that's it. And it, it was the last album Jimmy made with Zeppelin that Jimmy was completely in control of mm-hmm. and very, very present. Yeah. And the Pres- title Presence <clears throat> is an occult thing, you know. In Through the Outdoor, Jimmy was hardly involved. By now, the, the smack is not doing him any favours, as it always does. It now moves into this hugely detrimental thing where everything is a reverse. Mm-hmm. All your luck is bad. Mm-hmm. Everything is fucked up. And John Paul Jones and Plant pretty much brought home in through the outdoor. Mm. That's why there's a lot of keyboards on it. I wondered. Uh, I like that a album a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really good album. Really good album. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Presence. I, I was amazed. I think of all the great records he made, Presence? Yeah. Interesting. Because it's... But- it's not one of my favorites. There's some good stuff no. on it, but I, I, you know, if you and I had, I've never heard Zeppelin or you've never heard Zeppelin. What, let me play you. 
Let me play you presents. You're going to love this. Oh, it's amazing. No, that's not like, it. Uh-huh. It's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Turn it but down. Every, <laughs> but everything you've said as a preamble to this moment about Jimmy and his not inability to move on past the Zeppelin years if that is yeah. the height of his power and control of that band, no wonder he feels the way he does about that album. Okay, so let me ask you this. You kind of blew me away on a recent episode of the podcast with your friend, Johnny, who I've even Googled him. I don't know what his story is. You'll have to tell me what it is, where he fits <laughs> in. But yeah. do you really not know any Rush songs or Tom Sawyer? Or was that an inside joke? Because you guys were, in fact, you started off this conversation talking about having just gotten on phone with Stephen Wilson. My, if I remember correctly, you and Stephen Wilson were in a bar and you were talking about bands that have that one song that everybody knows and everything kind of yeah. revolves around that. And Stephen Wilson yeah. said, well, for Rush, it's Tom Sawyer. And you to your co-host, Johnny, is like, I don't even know that song. I don't, what is Rush? Who is Rush? Was that a joke? That had to be a joke. No. Now, in fact, in fact, it wasn't Stephen that said that. Uh, someone else at the table oh, said, okay. um, I don't think it was Tom Sawyer. I think it was, uh, what was that, like, radio something? Uh, Spirit of Radio. In the UK, that was a hit, okay? okay? Okay. So someone went, Spirit of the Radio, and Stephen Wilson said, nah, no, that, that, no one knows that other than Rush fans, you know? Right. And... Um, uh, and I, I got to tell you, uh, there was a Rush album in the early nineties. Rattle the rattle the bones. Roll the bone. Roll the bones. That's roll my favorite. That's my favorite Rush album. Well, that's the only one they did that was any good. You know, let's agree <laughs> on that. <laughs> you know, that, you know, I, I could listen to that if I have to. I'm like, yeah, I get that. I, I really did think at the time that's a good record. But the rest of it, no, man, it rubs me wrong. I mean, if I want to hear Led Zeppelin, I will listen to Led Zeppelin. If I want to hear John Anderson from Yes singing bad Led Zeppelin, I'll get me some Rush, you know? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the gag was me pushing it because John is a huge Rush okay. fan. Okay. And so I'm kind of saying to him, really? I don't even yeah. know that song. So like, he's like... <laughs> Fucking steam is coming out of his ears. He's like, but I find it's a generation, like we were saying about, um, what did we say when you said with Bowie tonight and let's dance, those were your records. I think it's a generational thing. So I'll give you an example. Almost everybody I know that is, John is like 10 years younger than me. And pretty much everyone I know that is from that era loves them. So Rush loves fucking Rush. Mm -hmm. And I do get it, but I don't need it because by the time Rush came along, I'd already had 10 years of Zeppelin, mm -hmm. uh, 10 years of Bowie, 10 years of Yes, 10 years of Pink Floyd, 10 years of Sabbath. Marillion, you talk a lot about Marillion. There's, some, there's not that far off. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Marillion, at their best with Fish, and they've done some good stuff since, I I find them much more interesting than Rush. Mm -hmm. 
I, there are a couple of Meridian records, particularly an album called Clutching at Straws, which for me is as good as a Pink Floyd album. Mm-hmm. And and in fairness to Rush, I know they've they've had a fantastic career, and and the people I know that really are into them, they're serious, mm-hmm. and I respect those people. We, you know, these these are idiots. Mm-hmm. Like clearly, you like Rush. I respect you, and I do get it. But, you know, I'm a dad, right? Okay. And a lot of fun I have as a dad is absolutely shitting over my children's music and toast. You know? yeah. What do you think of this, Dad? What the fuck? What do I think of that? I wouldn't wipe my ass on that. What the fuck is that? I mean, I don't use those words exactly, but sure. that's the meaning. Sure. They're like, oh, Dad, your dad knows nothing. <laughs> so, like, my Rush friends are all like, oh, they cannot uh, believe it. They cannot believe it that I am not as connected to the music of Rush as they are. Yeah. But without any kidding, I'm really not. I'm really uh-huh. not. I mean, Roll the Bones, I like that. I couldn't name you a single track from it other than maybe there's a title track. There is one. <laughs> yes. That's it. I'm out after that. Yeah. Um, as for Spirit of So after that podcast with John, we punched up Tom Sawyer on Spotify to see if I recognized it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I do remember this. I always hated this shit. <laughs> that rushes it. Fuck, no wonder I never went any further, you know. I just, there's something about just rubs me wrong. I, I just, I know what uh, you, mean. you know, like some people, but some people don't like country totally. music. Totally. Uh, I love country music. But, I do but too. I know what those, I, so I know what rubs them wrong i get that i get that people love rush and i i've seen them live amazing live i just can't get with the records i just Somebody can't do. and and isn't tom sawyer kind of a corny fucking name for <laughs> how about how about thunderbolt kid yeah tom <laughs> sawyer the fuck is that some guy with a fucking piece of straw in his mouth walking by the river with huckleberry Finn. what is that it's not rock and roll. What's any it's of it? Crazy, I know some Canadian idea of rock and roll. I get it. I get it. I am, despite how I sound right now, I really I like Rush. I'm not a super fan because they have the most passionate fans. So to claim to be a super fan, I I pale in comparison to those people. I and yeah. I'm probably not a true fan either because I like their 80s and 90s stuff when they got a little poppier, a little more melodic yeah, yeah. than the weird early yeah. Zeppelin ripoff stuff. Yeah. So they yeah, got, I just quite good. I just was so curious what the story with that conversation was. It seemed like you were just uh, you know giving him a hard time, but I wasn't sure. Oh so. yeah, you know I okay. love giving John a hard time. I, yeah. I love giving everybody a hard time. You know I have Irish roots with some Scottish uh-huh. in there, and it's all about giving the other guy a hard time. Good. You know, good, good. And, I, and that's how I bond with my friends. I you can know, tell. My, my 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 wife. I got a friend Harry. Um, he did a pod with me recently. Uh, he's from Scotland. Uh, he, he lived in, he grew up in England, so he doesn't have the Scottish accent unless he goes back to Scotland. Then there it is. Mm-hmm. But he and I are both Celts. And my wife says, I can't tell sometimes if you two are having a really good time or having a really big argument <laughs> because you're like yelling at each other and telling the other guy he doesn't know shit. Uh-huh. And, you know, for instance, Harry loves Rush, you know, so I'm like, are you fucking kidding? You know, uh-huh. and he's like, well, yeah, but you like 
you know, whatever I like that he hates, you know, yeah. Lou Reed, what is that? That's a fucking joke. You know, it's like, oh, right. okay. Right. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Just a few more minutes, but before, uh, there's so many other things, but give me a fourth song real quick. Well, it was either going to be a Lou Reed song, either women or a track called the gun. I love the gun. Nine millimeter browning. Let's see what it could do. He'll point it at your mouth. Says that he'll blow your brains out. Don't you mess with me. I'm carrying a gun. Carrying a gun. with me I'm carrying a gun carrying a gun carrying a gun serious track that's a Lou Reed's done a lot of gothic dark dark for real stuff in fact as I'm saying this I think of loads more tracks I would probably prefer to the gun but the gun is a good one because it's not so well known and it just has a it has a mood it has a tone which I think only Lou Reed can bring and you, you can try for it but it's so authentic. You know this guy is not writing a song that he hopes you're all going to like. Mm-hmm. He's telling something that probably even he doesn't like. You know, it's, it's, a piece of, it's a piece of amazing art. Yeah. And, and Lou Reed, I think, is one of the most misunderstood artists. Uh, I wrote a book on him once, and um, it's incredible how through his whole career, Either he was ahead of the curve or he just was so courageous, or like no plan B. The Velvet Underground didn't sell shit. Everybody thought they were an appalling joke, a Warhol fop, a Warhol second thought for a joke, you know. Now they're considered the kind of the flip side of the Beatles, the most in, one of the most influential groups of all time. Lou Reed's solo career, and this is where I started buying his records, he got the worst press ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Cut to years later. I mean, I remember when Berlin came out. I mean, the music press was very outspoken in those days. And they said, this guy is actually a fucking joke. He has no talent whatsoever. This is an insult to audiences, you know. Mm-hmm. Cut to 30 years later, and suddenly symphony orchestras are doing versions of Berlin around the world with many guest singers and artists begging to be involved because it was a fantastic, it was a work of art. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the record he did after Transformer and Walk on the Wild Side with Bowie. That was not the record to follow up Walk on the Wild Side right. and Transformer. Berlin was career suicide. Right. Uh, metal machine music. My God, it, 
Google. Look at some of the reviews about metal machine music. Oh, I've seen Again, them, yeah. 30, 40 years later, it's being performed as this avant-garde masterpiece, you know. Yeah. End of his career, he does the album with Metallica, Lulu, which I think is a masterpiece. Oh, you're one of the only ones. Okay. That's what they all say. <laughs> but but um, Lou Reed fans love it. Lou uh -huh. Reed fans love it. It's very much a Lou Reed album. Okay. Lou Reed loved hard rock and roll. Yeah, I did. Um, if you listen to uh, Rock and Roll Animal or Lou Reed Live, that's some tough rock. Yeah, Steve Wagner. That's uh, sorry, Dick Wagner, Steve Hunter, all kinds of amazing, far out rock guitarists. If you listen to his live album, Live No Prisoners, when he does the version of Walk on the Wild Side, it's about 18 minutes long. Mm -hmm. He barely sings it, but he just tells you where that song came from. Mm -hmm. oh, man, it's, it's like Lenny Bruce, or it's just yeah. electric. So for me, um, the Lulu album, absolute masterpiece. And I reviewed it for Classic Rock Magazine, a magazine I helped form and single-handedly built. Mm. And I gave it 10 out of 10. And the guy who replaced me, who I had hired, had to call me and say, uh, you can't pick this 10 out of 10. I said, why? <laughs> he said, because it's shit. I'm like, dude, this is not shit. Uh -huh. Okay. So he said, we can't run it unless you rewrite it. I said, what's the most I can give it? He said, seven out of 10. So I gave it seven out of 10. Interesting. And then in the Lou Reed book, I told the real story. Oh, my gosh. That is great. Or maybe the Metallica book. But no, seriously, if you look in the Metallica book, probably the Lou Reed book, but definitely the Metallica book, I write about it very passionately. And a lot of my metal friends were saying, they got very upset because a lot of people would say to them, you just don't get it. You're not getting it. And of course, that would infuriate them because that infers that you're somehow too dumb, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, no, no, guys, 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 it's not about getting it. It's getting it. Let it, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's the greatest record in the world, but kudos to Metallica for taking such a bold, crazy, insane move. Yeah, Saint Anger is one of my favorite Metallica albums because, again, it is trying to do something that isn't about what will make the fans happy. It's about what can we do that we haven't done before. That's the problem with art. It can blow up in your face. People say you're a fool. Mm -hmm. People say, what the fuck was he thinking? But sometimes the work, the work is so extraordinary that when all of that shit blows away, you can listen to it and go, what were they thinking? Man, this is yeah. some far out fucking stuff here. Right. What, what was Bowie thinking when he followed up Diamond Dogs with uh, Young Americans? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm so glad he did it. I'm yeah. so glad he did it. What Good was point. he thinking when he followed up Golden Years and Station to Station with Low, mm. one of his worst selling albums in America? Mm -hmm. The whole label up in arms they didn't want to put it out when they did put it out they didn't promote it that was kind of like his metal machine musical berlin good point. you know good point yeah that's true um so okay i i, I love blue reed and metallica i loved them for the effort 
Okay. And there's some great music on there. There really is. There is. I'm a, I, I'm less of a, I'm a big Velvet Underground fan. I'm, I'm skeptical. It's, there's a lot of ups and downs and lose um, solo canon, but I'll listen to the cut. I don't think I know that one. Um, okay. I got to ask you some questions from our Patreon supporters. We, um, I always throw it out there that I, who I'm interviewing and they're welcome to provide some, um, questions. One of them in particular, well, there's two, there's two guys here that I want to showcase. One is named Stephen Shaw. And, uh, he says, you know, I live my life through a Huey Lewis prism, unfortunately. So any questions I have has to go, I have go back to Huey Lewis. He said, he wants to know why, uh, about the time that you saw Clover, in London in the late seventies. And why don't you think Clover ever got big? Because Huey, this is <laughs> such an odd question, but I love that Steven sent it because Huey always says it was the wrong place at the wrong time. Punk, punk is starting to happen. Clover yeah. are very yeah. much out of step with that. What's your take on yeah. Clover? He's nailed it. He's absolutely it. got it. C Clover were a fantastic band. Just the best night out. You know, it's Clover that is the band on the first Elvis Costello album. That's right. Um, my aim is true. Yep. That band is Clover. Hugh, Huey Lewis was a big friend of Phil Linus. Clover and Thin Lizzy did a lot together in the UK. So Clover were on the scene and I was aware of them, but I saw them that night. I can't believe this guy. We're going back to a review I wrote in 78 or something. And they were just amazing and such great fun. Beautiful, great players, great singers, great songs. I mean, nothing not to like. But in London at that time, a, a bunch of American guys with longer hair and flares doing what London punks considered country rock, which, excuse me, which it wasn't. Uh, more kind of West Coast, I guess, or something. But um, they're just... It wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Unless they had a hit single. But even then, if they would have been known for the one hit, they weren't. They just never, ever were going to be on the cover of the New Musical Express or, you know, uh, you know Rolling Stone or whatever it is in those days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, it was a tragedy. Uh, so they went back to America. And you know what happened then. I mean, I, I got to know Huey a little bit after sports became such a big album and i've got a picture of me i don't know where it is i've got a i had it framed on the wall for years there's a picture of me and huey and his band on this tiny little prop plane going from london up to newcastle in the north of the country to do a tv show called the tube which used to be filmed and it wasn't the tube it was another show it was filmed up in newcastle and it's a tiny, tiny prop plane. It's like being in a van. Mm -hmm. So here's Huey and here's me. We're literally we're in this plane. The captain is called Captain Luck, which immediately freaked everybody out. Then we get in. It's like getting in a van. It wasn't like getting on a plane. I've got a picture of me outside the plane with the van, and then on the plane, <laughs> we're all leaning in shoulders while holding beers, you know. And <laughs> um, we get on this plane, buckle in. And uh, the guy started out, you know, I don't know if you've ever taken off in a prop plane. It's worse than a, than a, than a, than a ride at the park. You know, it's right. horrible. Right. And um, he's like, hi, guys. Uh, as, we're, as we're trying to get off the ground, and it feels like you're going to crash every second, right? 
He's like, so guys, uh, I'm your pilot. And it, this is not like, this is your pilot speaking. He's over his shoulder, like a guy in the face. Like, so I'm Captain Luck. You know, the guy, <laughs> we're going to die. We're going to fucking die. That's Buddy Holly territory right there. The guy was Captain Luck, and he was over his shoulder like this. And then he goes, who wants a drink? We're going to fucking need a drink, please, Captain Luck. You can't walk down the plane. He has this big silver chest, and there's about this this much room to walk down the middle to get into your, like, one seat here, one seat here, right? He's got this thing, and it's on wheels, and he just pushes it down the aisle. You pull up the lid and a couple of beers, you know, it's like that. So I thought, we are definitely fucking dying today. (laughs) But we didn't. And Huey was a fantastic guy. I think because he knew, I knew Phil Reiner, it was a bit more fun. And he just said, listen, when we got back, uh, everybody told me my voice did not fit American radio. I literally had zero chance. Uh, If we wanted to get a proper singer in, our songs were great. They really felt we had something. But your voice is too rough, too gruff. This is the era of Steve Perry, of... uh, uh, what was his name? Dennis DeYoung in Sticks yeah. or Lou Graham. the guy in yeah. REO. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, Kevin oh, Yeah, great. You know, keep on loving you. Uh-huh. you know? And here's Huey going, so this is it, baby. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and of course, he looked older and he looked uh-huh. like out of the Rockford Files. Here's a guy, here's fucking Jim Rockford from the Rockford Files singing you, singing you a song that your, only your dad could love. You know? uh-huh. And, of course, in America, they're going, no, this is bullshit. This will never fucking fly. Biggest hit of the year. Biggest hit of the year. Yeah. Which, which proves, proves the old maxim, which is no one knows nothing. That's right. That's right. Okay, good. Um, all right. Philip Hopwood sent over. Boy, given given how many stories you have and how much you like to tell them, this I hope that we can condense this question and it doesn't take an hour because it could. So let me uh, let me tell no, you what it I, is. I know I talk too much. I will shut up. It's not too much. Up. It's that you're so full of good stuff. I I say one thing, and there's 20 minutes of gold following that one thing. So okay, um, well, we got to do this again. We got to do this again. We will. We will. So Fuller, first of all, Philip's a huge fan, and he says, uh, first of all, how are you still alive after all the drugging and the drinking and the boozing and all that kind of stuff, partying that you've experienced over the years? Um, Is it just your constitution? And then secondly, he wants to know your top three rock star interviews. Thirdly, brief three word impressions of David Lee Roth, Richie Blackmore and Ozzy Osbourne. Wow. Okay. The uh, answer to the first question is, yeah, there's something to do with the Constitution. Uh, my dad was a, a drinking, hard, rocking, put it that way, guy. Um, it made him a terrible father mm. and a terrible husband, but that motherfucker would not stop. And I inherited some of that. But the luck for me was that back in the 80s, after I came out of the bad situation uh, i hooked up with a girl who worked in a health food store and took care of me i became vegetarian uh, i still drank a ton 
I still like smoking weed because in my mind that was never a drug mm-hmm. uh, and booze was okay because it was legal. So I, I felt I was in good, good hands with those two things. I mean, obviously that's bullshit, but back in the 80s, right. um, very little coke unless I was out on the road and I started exercising. And uh, I was getting older, at 29 when I started exercising. I didn't want the gut. You know, I still wanted to be attractive to, to, to beautiful women. And, um, you know, that, we all go through it. The guys get to their late 20s, early 30s, and you suddenly realize you've got to maybe put a bit more effort into not looking <laughs> shit, you know. So there was that. I think that was a big, that was a lifesaver. I mean, in the end, I hated her. She was a psycho, John, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. We've all I been mean, there. Fucked up. I believe it. A friend of mine, an American friend of mine said to me once, he said, I was telling her a 20 years after I broke up with her, he was in America somewhere and he bumped into her and he emailed me and said, Oh, I met that chick. She, she said, she, she said to say hi. And uh, to, she asked if she could have your number. And I went, if you give her my fucking number, man, I will track you down and kill you. Okay. <laughs> I said, this chick is mental. And he goes, Mick, they're all mental. You just have to find one you can live with, okay? I went, I hear you, brother, but not that one. Okay. (laughs) That's not the one. But but ironically, she she kept me alive. And then um great. That yeah, I mean uh, over the long haul, I do try and take care of myself. I'm not vegetarian anymore, Mm. um, but I do still exercise. I try and work on myself a little bit. Sounds like you drink still. Do you do do you smoke weed still? No, no. I I, I had a heart attack in two thousand and five. I was forty six. Wow. And that was directly from night and day, round the clock. Mm-hmm. Because by then I was a dad, and I was working home all the time, and I didn't want to travel anymore. I was in a I was in a deep deep cave. And uh, that's all I did. And then I had the heart attack. It was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. And, and in, in many ways, the, because I had to stop smoking like that, mm. I thought I'd never write again. It was so embedded in my mind that I couldn't write unless I did that. Yeah, the two went. Um, completely. Uh, and then it turned out not to be true. I remember a friend, Pete Mikowski, who died recently. He, he, had, a, he had a very similar life to me. But in the early 90s, he became a drugs counselor. He, he really flipped, clean and sober, helping other addicts. And I remember he said to me, this is like 2005, I was telling him, I don't think I can write again without the dope. And he said, um, you might be an even better writer. Mm. And I tell you what, John, I nearly punched him in the face. <laughs> I just thought, fuck, that was so... It was like the worst thing you could say to me. It was so non-sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, how can you say, oh, oh, I'll be a better, of course I will. Fuck off, man, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Guess what? I was a much better writer. That's great. Like much, 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 much. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and luck. Luck, Good. man. I could Good. feel tomorrow. You know, but I'm trying hard not to. Second one, David Lee Roth. Oh, sorry, the third one was David Lee. The second yeah, one is also greatest okay. rock and roll interview ever. Too many, too many, okay? But here's the one I'm going to say today. I interviewed David Lee Roth 
on the skyscraper tour in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1988. He was doing two nights at, you know, the Enormo Dome, whatever the local arena is. I can't remember the name. Mm -hmm. Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was a skyscraper tour. It's the tour where he had the surfboard, the boxing ring, the second album with the Steve Vai, Greg Bissonette band. And he was incredible. He was incredible. He was the greatest. It was the greatest rock star performance I ever saw. Wow. And afterwards, I'd never interviewed him before. I'd met, but never sat down. So after the show, uh, he never would eat before a show. But after the show, it was like he always had the same food, which was lobster. Mm. He always had the same booze, which would be Budweiser and Jack Daniels. That's all anybody else could have as well on the tour. Mm. You couldn't have it. Can I have some wine, Bud or Jack? So we're in the room. So he's eating. He's eating his lobster. And I'm talking to Brett Tuggle, the keyboard player, who's finished eating. Because Roth is eating. I don't want to be going, oh, hi. Oh, Dave, while you're eating, let me uh, hang out with you. You know, mm. I'm in a space that the man fucking eats. He's done a show, you know. So I'm chatting to Brett. Next thing, Roth stands up, chair goes flying, storms out of the room. And I got the vibe that this was not a rare occurrence because everyone's uh-huh. kind of like, okay, here we go. One of those. And I'm going, and the woman PR said to me, she, she, she had a foreign accent. I can't do it exactly, but you, she's like a Schwarzenegger. But she said to me, you know, Dave, He's pissed off. You're not talking to him. <laughs> and I went, he's eating his dinner. I'm, I'm, this is good matters. No, you have to come and apologize. Fuck. So, man. so I have to follow her down the corridor. I go into this special room and it's all a gag. Here's Roth. Here's Steve Vai. Here's Roth's manager, Pete Angelis. They've got a Z80s, huge ghetto blaster playing Pick Up the Pieces by the average white band. Oh, wow. And in this room is one of the most beautiful young women you have ever seen in your life. Mm-hmm. Very deep tan, black hair, mm-hmm. completely naked, mm. dancing. <laughs> and when I say dance, I don't mean on a stage. I mean, John, like, you're me and I'm the chick, which is like, you know. <laughs> and you can see them going to this guy, this guy. And then he's like, oh, okay. So off she goes. And then uh, uh, have a joint, okay, have a joint. And he goes, you want a bump? Like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like this, white powder. He has a guitar pick. Pulls it up. No, no chopping it out. Uh-huh. <laughs> Have a jack. So this and Vi's in there and he's fucking because he's meant to be Mr. Perfect. I don't uh-huh. drink, I don't eat meat, I don't do drugs. He's in there fucking loving every bit, you know. And um eventually it's like laugh, laugh, laughs, and eventually it all, you know, kind of comes to a, a natural end. By now. I'm going to say it's like 12.30 a.m., uh-huh. nearly 1 a.m. And Roth says to me, people start leaving. So I go to leave. And Roth goes, no, 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 you hang back, hang back. He said, we're going to talk. And I went, oh, I'll get my tape recorder, as it was uh-huh. then. 
He said, no tape recording. I'm like, oh, come on. He said, we'll, we'll, we'll do something on tape tomorrow, but not tonight. This is going to be man talk. I'm thinking, man <laughs> okay. talk? I'm up for that. Uh-huh. So no tape recorder, my, to my eternal regret. But Dave and I sat in that room, John. I'm going to say from 1 a.m., but it was probably like 12.40 or something. Mm-hmm. It is after one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life. Probably the greatest. And I saw Bowie and everybody. Mm-hmm. Greatest one-man show. Just incredible. And we've had the whole gag with the dinner and the, the, the dancing girl and the drugs and this and that. So now we're going to have man talk, but no tape recorder. Mm. It's like 12.40, 12.45. We left that room at lunchtime the next day. No way! <laughs> Over 12 hours later. Wow. Oh, yeah. And he's talking the whole time. I believe it. And I'm listening it. and laughing and laugh. I've never laughed so much in my life. Yeah. My head was never blown apart so much in my life. Yeah. We must have done at least a bottle or two of Jack. God knows how much of the big white bag. He's also got an enormous black, what we call a bin liner over here. I don't know if you call that in America, but where you put the trash, you know, one of those big garbage bag. black yeah. garbage bags. Yeah. Full of wheat. Full. And he's just like grabbing it in handfuls and smashing it in a fucking bomb and off we uh-huh. go. 12 hours. Oh. 12 fucking hours. So we come out, it's blinding sunlight. For everybody else, it's 1:30 in the afternoon. It's 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 a sunny day. For us, it's like <sighs> vampires. Uh-huh. <sighs> We get in his limo, he's been waiting all night. We go back to the hotel. We're staying in the same hotel, but I'm in, you know, uh-huh. room, room. Different floors, different, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Room with a bed in it. That right. <laughs> uh, he's in like the presidential suite, you know. Right. He's going, come on, let's have a nightcap. Let's have a nightcap, man. And, and, and I, I was, I'm a nightcap guy, okay. Uh-huh. But even I, even I have to say, Dave, I've really got to hit, I've really, I just got to go and kill myself right now. Like, okay. I just got to fucking get out of here. You know? Right. And and the lady PR, she was not back, and she's going, Dave, Dave, let him leave, let him leave. Come on, man, let's have a fucking nightcap. What are you, a pussy? You know. <laughs> but the ele- I'm, going, I'm going in the elevator. Elevator doors are like this, right? They're like this. He's got his fingers in it. Come on, man, let's have a nightcap. She's going, no, Dave, let him go, let him go. So. That's the greatest interview I ever did. Nice. I could see that. I could see that. Good and then one. what was the final one? Because I got a well, split the, in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the final question was three words on Roth, which you just gave plenty. Black, Richie Blackmore and Ozzy Osbourne. Richie Blackmore. Incredibly talented visionary. You know, Blackmore was one of those, is one of those guys who doesn't, play for the crowd. Mm-hmm. Of course, he had, wants people to buy tickets and enjoy his music. Mm-hmm. But if he wanted to play for the crowd, he wouldn't be walking around looking like, you know, Robin Hood playing medieval <laughs> music. <laughs> he, 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 he's serious. That guy is serious. For me, in the same way when I talk about Lou Reed uh, or, or comparable artists, Bowie, whoever it might be, 
really serious. And for him, this is where it's at. And he's always, this has always been his favourite music. And so I find him incredibly authentic. And, of course, he's also utterly insane, which yes. uh, you could say the same about Mozart or, or Dr. Frankenstein. You know, they, they're just geniuses, but they don't know what they're doing sometimes until the monster comes and kills them, you know. Yes. Yeah. And what was the last one? Ozzy. Ozzy, Ozzy, which you could go for hours on, but... Well, this is the most honest, the most honest. He's the only one I've ever met that truly understands how lucky he is. Hmm. He's a brilliant front man. He, he, he did a, so many great records. Brilliant live performances. He knows he's not a singer. He knows he's a vocalist. Yeah. But I remember when Bark at the Moon came out, it says on the back of the sleeve, you know, the old-fashioned record sleeve, it says, written, something like, probably not in this order, but like, written, arranged, and produced by Ozzy Osbourne. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was sitting with him, he goes, fucking hell, mate, look at that. Written, <laughs> arranged, produced by Ozzy Osbourne. I couldn't produce a fucking fart. <laughs> that's all Sharon it's all fucking Sharon right <laughs> he never wrote a song in his life yeah. he wouldn't know how to arrange a fucking cup of coffee mm -hmm. and like you said he can't lucky being a producer far mm -hmm. but he will be straight with you yeah. and, and 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 that makes him to me real I love authenticity mm -hmm. and he's authentic and he is very talented hilariously funny and he's always been an absolute sweetheart. You know, so many people in this business, like, oh, what was it like when you met Sansa? Oh, he's a, he's a really great guy, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he needed to be in that moment. Mm -hmm. Ozzy always misses the moment. He spectacularly fails at so many of these things. Mm. But he's always genuine. Yeah. Um, and uh, for that, you know, I, that makes him very, very rare to me. Very rare. Good. Okay. okay. Well, uh Philip wanted me to tell you real quick, as someone who grew up reading his reviews and sounds, he wants to thank you for giving a teenage boy in Bolton a glimpse into the rock star life and uh, rock star life on the road. So thanks from Philip. Oh, bless you. Um, well, hey, John, whenever I wrote that stuff, uh, because I didn't always know everything about the music, I knew I couldn't, I knew that wasn't where I lived. I knew there were people that would be able to write much better about music and understood it better. So I wanted to kind of write about the experience. So for me, when I was writing these stories, it was like, you and me, we're going to go in this room now and see whoever it is we're going to see. And it can be uh, terrible or it could be interesting. But um, this is what it's like. I felt like I was telling my best friend. He couldn't be there that night. Yeah. And, that's, uh, and so to hear someone say that is incredibly fulfilling. Yeah, because, you did it. Uh, it means that, well, yeah, you don't know. You don't know if you're doing I it. I don't know if I'm doing it right now or when I write something. Right. And then one day, maybe years later, someone says, I, I really like that thing you did. And you go, wow, thank you. Yeah. So yeah. someone liked it. That is amazing. That's, that's really the only reason I have to still be here. I get it. I get it. Well, I, uh, I always love hearing from you whenever you pop up as being thoughtful or having an opinion on anything. And uh, we got to about a third of the things I had written down to talk to you about. So well, we'll have to do, do another do, one do, of these. Let's do it again. Okay. Let's do it again. As soon as you've okay. recovered from this, Good. you let me know. Okay. I'll come back 
and it will be a pleasure. Listen, it's so great to meet you at last. You it's too. So give great. us give us a fifth song to close this out with. Okay, I wrote something down. Uh, oh, oh yeah, okay. Dead flowers by the Rolling Stones. Good one. Um, again, a kind of a not an obvious choice, perhaps, but they wrote it with Graham Parsons. They never credited, of course, because they're fucking assholes. But Keith loved Graham, and it is just a fantastic song. There's one verse I always love, which I can never quite remember the right words, but it goes in has it laying back in your rose hip. No. Something laying back in your rose hip Cadillac in the basement with your needle and a spoon. Mm. You know. Give me dead, it is Susie, lay me down. Dead flowers, bloody, bloody, by the pound. It just, to me, it works on so many levels. Good one. And of course, given my certain parts of my past, yep. it, it, it glamorized. People go, oh, no, they, they, you know, you mustn't glamorize drugs. Well, when I was a young man, that was about one of the most glamorous fucking things in the world was drugs. Mm -hmm. Here I am laying back in my rose pink Cadillac. With a needle and a spoon. I mean, okay, okay, okay. We don't need the needle and the spoon, but for a certain time in history, sure. in rock and roll, in my life, in the universe, that needle and the spoon were exactly what you needed in the back of your fucking Cadillac. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Drugs are good, or else no one would no one would take them. That's the point. Exactly. They're fun. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and when you realize that it's not worth having that kind of fun, you move on. And uh, yeah, it's like, like I say, if you take out all the records uh, these days, it's streams and like, kill, delete everything you've got that was made by people on drugs. Uh, what have you got left? The Osmonds? That's about it. That's about it. You know, the Julie Andrews. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you, Mick. You're a legend. This meant a lot to me. Thank you. And we'll do it again. John, thank you so much. And also for putting up with all the not this day, that day, and all that shit. No. Thank you so, so much. And listen, Gold. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been a blast. Anytime yeah. you want to do this again, okay. I'm there. Just say I'm it. taking you up on it. Thank Good. you, sir. Good. All right, there you have it. Mick Wall. Wasn't that great? I could just, oh, man. I just love listening to these stories. They are so much fun. All that Zeppelin stuff, crazy. I had no idea. So um, here's the deal. If you have not been listening to his podcast, go check it out because it's it's just like this. It Only it's better because it's him and some other writer or buddy of his that's as much an insider as, they, as he is sharing stories about all these people, talking shit, whatever. I mean, it is great insidery stuff. I got to read some of his books. I've always meant to do that. Never done it. But uh, he is so much fun to listen to. Hopefully we can squeeze in a part two and get to all the other stuff that I want to talk to him about that we didn't even, even get around to this time. Now, uh, we are about to kick off what I consider to be another winning streak. I mean, we're talking the next couple of months are going to be filled with people who you know, who have put out songs you know, or albums you love or whatever that's what's coming for the next couple of weeks i am so excited for everybody to hear this and next week's guest 
is one of the biggest two-hit wonders of all time. And I say that because that second hit of theirs is often forgotten about. I'm sure most people think they're a one-hit wonder when te technically they're two. It's just that that one hit is still as gigantic as it ever was. This is a really interesting chat. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Folks, you can send us a message on Facebook. You can like our page on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. We will have a bonus book club episode coming out later this week that I'm really excited about. And um, I hope everybody listened to the Howie Klein episode that we put out last week. It's very similar to this one. It's a lifer just telling stories. It's us sitting at the feet of these people that are so full of fantastic wisdom and knowledge. And they are imparting it to us. So if you... I didn't mean for it to look as if the Howie Klein episode was lesser than because it was a bo bonus episode. It's not at all. Go listen to Howie too. If you like this conversation with Mick, you'll love that one because it's very similar. Just telling stories. I love it. Thanks everybody. We love you.